We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Privilege this morning of introducing for you who will be preaching for us today as well as um, reminding you, giving you a refresher of what we're doing today. This is Ascension Sunday. It's the second time uh, that Emmaus Church has celebrated Ascension Sunday. It's a part of the church's historical uh, church calendar, and it uh, celebrates the 40th day after the resurrection of Jesus, which is when he ascended up in the, in the gospel accounts. He ascended back up into heaven. Uh, this is a, a crucial element in the gospel narrative. And um, so the church has historically celebrated this. 40 days after Easter would be last Thursday. And so today is Ascension Sunday. And uh, so last year was the first time we celebrated Ascension Sunday. We did that virtually. This was before we were actually able to meet in person, even with masks and social distancing. So, um, so this is the first time that we will have celebrated Ascension Sunday in person. So we're very excited about that. We have um, Patrick Schreiner is going to be preaching for us today. Um, Dr. Schreiner is a professor of New Testament at Midwestern uh, Seminary. And uh, some of you have, have read some of his books. He actually wrote a book on the Ascension of Christ, which is why uh, we had him uh, come and preach for us, which is why I'm sure he's probably preached every Ascension Sunday uh, since the book has come out. But... Um, yeah, he's written a book on the topic. I, I really encourage you to read it. It's very accessible. It's, it's a short, accessible book. It's very devotionally um, written. It's called uh, The Ascension of, of Christ, uh, Reclaiming a Neglected Doctrine, something along those lines, um, Bringing Back a Neglected uh, Doctrine. So um, let me ask you, uh, Patrick, why don't you come on up? I'm going to read the passages uh, that, that he'll be looking at this morning, and then I'll pray for him if he wants to pray for his sermon Again, after that, that's fine, but I'm going to go ahead and pray for him as well. So um, our scripture reading is coming from three different places. Um, so as I'm reading them, feel free to, to turn there and keep a finger there, but don't feel pressure um, to get them to get there and read with me. I'm just going to read them all um, back to back. So it's Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34, and 1 John 2.1. These are the words of God. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, our ascended and great high priest, we come to you in prayer because we believe that you are listening. We come to you in prayer because we believe that you hear us and that you are the sovereign Lord as the almighty the one who is actually able to answer prayer because you are not a dead king, but a living one, ascended and reigning, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Lord, this morning we sit eagerly before your feet, eager to hear from you as you speak to us through your word. Lord Jesus, the many needs of this congregation are too numerous to address in a single prayer 
or in a single sermon. So please, speak through your, the word preached this morning. Speak through your servant, Patrick, and call out to each of your sheep the words they need to hear from their good shepherd. May the hardened and calloused be convicted and softened and broken unto repentance. May the broken and exhausted and feeble and, and discouraged be picked up and spoken to with gentle, restorative affection. May the lost and wandering be drawn into your fold. We ask all of these things of you, Jesus, because we believe that you are the risen and ascended shepherd, and we believe that you love us, your sheep. O comforting spirit, please cause these words this morning to take deep root into our lives and conform us more and more to our precious Savior. We ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, appealing to his blood and righteousness alone. Amen. Join me in welcoming Patrick. Thanks, Sam. It's so good to be speaking to you this morning on the Ascension of Christ. Our family started attending in late July. We came when uh, you all were meeting outside. And uh, it's kind of weird to be speaking the first Sunday when you don't have to wear masks. So I recognize half of your faces. You'll get that joke a little later. Um, I actually texted Joss and I said, you know, the Lord's favor must be upon me to preach the first time you don't have to wear masks. It's, it's quite amazing. But when we came here to Kansas City, we moved from Portland, Oregon. Um, the, plan, the plan I told my wife was to visit a bunch of churches, get the lay of the land just in terms of Kansas City churches. Uh, we knew some people here, so we came here the first Sunday, and we basically never left after that. And so we didn't get to visit a bunch of churches, but we're so glad that we're here and honestly, just thank you in terms of the kindness, the hospitality, the warmth. The reason we stayed is we just felt at home here right away. And so we're so thankful to be here and thankful for everyone here. Um, so today we're going to look at the ascension. And the ascension, we use a lot of big words sometimes in church. The ascension simply refers to Jesus rising into heaven, which is different than his resurrection. It's his rising into heaven his soaring into heaven, we could even say. Jesus rose into the air, he entered into the heavens, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. And so many times it's easy for us to forget about this event. We have the tendency to speak about what Christ did, about his life, his death, his resurrection. These are all good things. Or what he will do, his return. But the reality of Christ's ascension points us to what Christ is doing now. What is Christ up to now? Have you ever considered what is Christ doing now? When you picture Christ now, what he's doing, what do you picture? Or do you ever, do you ever even think of that? Do you just think of his past and kind of future life? Is he simply sitting on the throne in heaven, waiting for this thing to get over? Reading the New York Times or whatever, just kind of waiting around for it to get over. There's a lot we could say about what Christ is doing now, but this morning... I want to focus on one specific thing that Christ continues to do. One specific thing that Christ continues to do. And to do so, I want to actually begin with a story. Uh, a few weeks ago, I rewatched the 2013 movie. I like watching movies as much as I can with young kids. It doesn't happen all the time. But the 2000 movie, Gravity. Uh, it's a movie about astronauts and space exploration. It has Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, if you ever watched it. You could go home and watch it if you want to today. It's a beautiful movie. It's uh, made by Alfonso Cuaron. 
who is known for his love of what you could call the long shot. So he doesn't like to splice a lot of shots together. He likes to do the long shot. It actually works really well for this movie because it's in space. So the camera's always roving and roaming around, kind of like things are floating in space. Sandra Bullock plays the character of Ryan Stone, and she's an astronaut, and a tragedy happens in this NASA operation. And she becomes stranded in space alone. Everyone else has died in this tragedy. And she doesn't know if she will survive. Her ship is destroyed. She has to travel through space to try to make it home. And one of the scariest things for her is that her communications go down. So for a while, she's able to talk to those people back on Earth or to other astronauts with her, but everything goes down and she can't speak to anyone. In the beginning of the movie, it says, there's nothing to carry sound in space. So in a real sense, there's no sound in space. There, there's nothing to carry it in space. And so one of the play of the movies is, is there's complete silence. There's complete silence for her. And there comes a point in the film where she's convinced that she's going to die. And she begins speaking on the radio to whoever might listen. And she says, oh, I know I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I know we're all going to die. Everybody knows that. But I'm going to die today. Then she goes on to reflect what that means. She says, nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you pray for me? Or is it too late? I mean, I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. Nobody taught me how. Nobody ever taught me how. In a moment where she thinks it's all over, when she thinks her life is about to end, she wonders, is anyone praying for me? Is anyone listening to me in the midst of all this silence? Is anyone hearing me? She wonders if there's anyone out there who cares for her when she can't hear anything. She can't hear anything in response. And today I want to show you that one of the main things our ascended Savior does is he prays for us. He prays for us. He prays for us before the throne of God. We use the term he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us before the throne of God. We sang about that in a number of the songs this morning. And I just want to meditate on that reality with you today. And the reason Sam read multiple texts is because there are a few texts we can go to, but you kind of have to put this thing together. And so unfortunately, it's not just from one text. We're actually looking at a few different texts, so you're going to have to be kind of jumping around. Hebrews 7.25, Romans 8.34, 1 John 2.1. I'm going to go to John 17. So we're going to be kind of roving around, and you can feel free to turn there as you wish, or you can just listen. It is a great comfort to hear that Christ prays for us, but what I want to show you this morning is that it's an even greater comfort to hear what he prays for us. What does Jesus pray for us? I want to draw your attention to three things. I'm trying to give you a clear outline since I'm all over with the text. I want to give you a clear outline of what I'm going to say. He prays three things for you, at least three things. We could say more, but three things. He prays for your protection. You are fully guarded. He prays for your preservation. You will be fully brought home, and he prays for your pardon. You are fully forgiven. Let me say that again. He prays for your protection, your preservation, and your pardon. So first, Christ prays for our protection, for your protection. We learn of what he prays for us in heaven by actually seeing what he prays for us on the earth. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, which is very appropriate in John 17, this is what we hear of what Jesus prays in John 17, 11. 
This is what Jesus says. And, and notice even the language is kind of alluding to the ascension. He's alluding that he's going to heaven. John 17, 11, he says, and I am no longer in the world. Actually, he is still in the world, so you can see he's pointed forward to his ascension. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. So did you hear his prayer? I am coming to you. Keep them in your name. Then jump down to John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your name and keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays that we would be kept, that we would be guarded, that we would be watched over, that we would be held. And he identifies more specifically who we are kept from. The evil one. The devil himself. For some of us, it might be pretty easy to go throughout our days, our weeks, our months, our years, assuming that we are safe. Thinking that nothing threatens us. Thinking that the world continues to roll on. But Jesus knows that we actually need protection. The road is more perilous than we might imagine. We are running a race with obstacles, and many of these obstacles are unseen. For the devil and his horde are full of malice and full of fire, and they desire to take us down. We read in 1 Peter how the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. We know from Ephesians that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. We know from Genesis 3 that the serpent sneaks into God's good creation to whisper in our ear and tempt us. The forces of darkness, though not seen, though we can't touch them, are out to devour and consume us. And how does this happen? What tools do they use? Well, the devil's name actually helps us here because his name simply means the accuser. The great accuser. That's what devil actually means. He is our great accuser. He condemns us. In John 8.44, Jesus says about Satan, he says he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's great tactic against you is lying and accusing. Lying and accusing. And we are tempted to believe the lies that the dark forces whisper into our ears like in the garden. He accuses you and me every day and says things like, you're not good enough. That you're a pretender. That you are God's least favorite child. That God is typically disappointed in you. That God wishes he would have made you differently. That those thoughts that you have, that you don't want to admit to people, make you unworthy of his love. That you are not precious in his sight. That your doubt in Christ even lessens his work for you. That your sin disqualifies you. That if you don't get your way, you won't be happy. For many of you in this room, this is a daily struggle. Your great struggle is to believe, and you are barely hanging on. Your faith feels like it's held by the thinnest string, 
or that's been shredded by doubts and uncertainty, and you don't know if you can make it another day. But the ascension reminds us that Jesus prays for us in the midst of this. That we will be kept from the evil one's accusations. The ascension tells us that while the devil accuses, there is a greater and stronger voice that is for you. All of Satan's charges are answered and rebuffed by our advocate who resides in the heavens. Your protection is not dependent upon your own strength, but on Jesus' prayers for you. Remember the story of Peter. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Well, what does Jesus say? But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. Satan has demanded to have you, but I've prayed for you. And did Peter's faith fail? Well, he stumbled, didn't he? He denied the Lord three times, but his faith did not fail. Why? Because Jesus prayed for him. Because Jesus prayed for him. Jesus' prayers are always effectual for you. And he has prayed that you would be kept from the evil one. It's one thing to pray and another thing to know that all of your prayers will be answered. All of Jesus' prayers are answered. All of them. As one pastor said, it's one thing to submit an application for a job and another thing to have someone on the inside track advocating for you. You have the ultimate person on the inside track advocating for you in heaven. And the Father always says yes to the Son's prayers. The Father will listen to the Son. The Father will always listen to the Son. And He has prayed that you would be protected from the evil one. That you would be kept from the evil one. I like to think that when Jesus went up to heaven, the cherubim were guarding it, like in the garden and at the tabernacle. Their flaming swords barred the way. And even more than that, Satan the accuser stood there. We read about this in Job, right? He goes up with the sons of God to approach Yahweh and his throne. And Satan was there. Satan himself stood there to condemn all who would seek to enter. But when Jesus arrived, Satan shrank back with a shriek. The cherubim began to tremble and they dropped their flaming swords. Rather than barring the gate, they bowed and they opened it. And Jesus stepped through to the ringing of praises. Here was one against whom the accuser had no charge. And it is this one who prays that you would be kept. This Satan, Satan will accuse you, but Jesus prays for you. I was reading Psalm 20, 121. These are Psalms of Ascent. I actually read through all of the Psalms of Ascent just to meditate on this this morning. What, what does this say? Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. You will be protected. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. He does not sleep. He always protects you. Christian, don't believe the lies of the accuser. Don't believe them. Satan whispers what is untrue. But Christ's voice is stronger. It is stronger. As McShane said, if, you could, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. 
yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Think about that. If you could hear Christ praying for you in the next room, you would go out with strength. And he is praying for you. He always prays for you. So, he prays for your protection. Second, Jesus not only prays for your protection, but for your preservation. And these are very similar in one way. But he not only prays that he would, you would be protected from the evil one, but from any suffering that might separate you, might threaten to separate you from the love of God. Now, we have to return to Romans again. We can't get out of Romans, no matter where we are. Romans 8, 33 through 35 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Now, listen to this order. It's death, resurrection, ascension. Okay? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Death. More than that, who is raised? Resurrection. Who is at the right hand of God? Ascension. Who indeed is interceding for you? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, which we could almost translate that as super victorious. We are super victorious through him who loved us. Paul doesn't say here that you won't have suffering. In this world, we will have trouble. But he says this suffering will not separate us from the love of Christ. Because we have one who has died for us, who is raised from the dead, and who now intercedes for us. We will all go through tribulation distress. In 1944, during World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were imprisoned by the Nazis in a concentration camp for their resistance work in aiding and helping and hiding Jews. Betsy, Corrie Ten Boom's sister, would never leave prison. She would die in prison there. One night in the concentration camp, Betsy read from these verses in Romans 8. And Corey reflected on her experience in, the book, in her book, The Hiding Place, which reflects on her experience in the concentration camp. And this is what she said as Betsy was reading this. The same text that we just read from Romans 8. I looked around as Betsy read, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It was not a wish. It was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. We are more than conquerors. Can you imagine reading those verses in a concentration camp and saying, we are more than conquerors? Then, he sh then she says, Jesus was the victor in the concentration camps. Jesus was the victor in the concentration camps. We all suffer in different ways. Some of you might struggle with past abuse, with disappointment, you might struggle with finances, lack of fulfillment, broken relationships, death of loved ones, lost jobs, the daily work of raising kids. Kids, you might even struggle with being distressed because you don't have the friends that you wish, or you look at other families and you wish that you were in that family because they get to do more things than you. Paul says in all of these things, you are super victorious because Jesus prays for you. Because Jesus intercedes for you, and you will not be separated from the love of Christ. And his prayers are not only effectual, we, we, we looked at how they were effectual last time, but they're intimate. He prays with great compassion and tenderness and sympathy for you. In Hebrews 2, 
It says Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. Because he suffered, he is able to help those who are also suffering. He is a man of sorrows. He intimately knows suffering. Therefore, he intimately knows your suffering. Some people reach such heights in their careers or in their lives that they forget their former acquaintances. They forget their former friends. They become too big for themselves and never reach out again to see how their former friends are doing. But our Lord is not this way. The splendors of heaven have not made him indifferent to our tribulations here on the earth. Though he has ascended, though he resides in the heavens, he occupies himself continually with caring for us by praying for us. What is Jesus doing in heaven? He breathes out continual prayers for you. He breathes out continual prayers for you. For 2,000 years, he has been continually making intercession for his people. I get tired of praying after five minutes. He's been praying for 2,000 years, and he never tires of it. It's his complete joy to do so. He never has taken a vacation from praying for his people. Constantly, always, whether you're awake or asleep, he is praying for you. And he's praying very specific prayers for you because he knows intimately your individual suffering, your individual tribulation and distress. His heart is continually stirred by compassion for you. And for all of us, our interceding Savior should be a great encouragement in our own prayer life during times of trouble and distress. When you don't know what to pray, remember your Savior prays for you. When your mind is clogged because of depression, anxiety, and distress, He still pleads for you despite your fogginess. When you don't know what to say, He still pleads for you. When your prayers feel weak, yoke them to Christ. Yoke them to Christ. When the high priest of old entered the presence of God in the Old Testament, if you read back in Exodus and Leviticus, they would have 12 jewels upon their chest. Those 12 jewels represented the 12 tribes of Israel, which represent all the people of God. And all those jewels were different. Why were they different? Because each tribe was different. And now all those jewels represent you and me. They represent our individual hurts and pains and struggles. He prays for you intimately. He knows your struggles. And if you knew that your message would reach the king's court for help, How often would you write? You know your message will reach it because Christ prays for you. He hears your every message, so pray to him. You will be preserved. You will conquer. You will be brought fully home because Jesus prays for you. Third, and finally, Christ not only prays for our protection, our preservation, but for our pardon, for our pardon, that you will be fully accepted, that you will be fully forgiven. Hebrews 7.25 This is what the author says. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost or completely. He's able to save completely or to the very end those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice that Jesus not only prays for our protection and preservation, but that we would be saved completely to the uttermost, to the very end. He prays for our pardon Let me say this very carefully and specifically. Jesus' saving work includes his intercession. 
Jesus' saving work includes his intercession. To put this more pointedly, Jesus' death is not the sum total of his sacrifice. This does not diminish the cross, but rather it fills it out and affirms that Christ has an offering both on earth and in heaven. Both on earth and in heaven. As one scholar put it, the cross was the first component of the sacrificial script. And how do we know this is true? Well, if you look back to the Old Testament sacrifices and think through how they actually went about doing these sacrifices, this begins to make sense. There was a process. We read in Leviticus 16 that Jews would slaughter the animal, but no animals are slaughtered on any of the Jewish altars. They are slaughtered outside of the Holy of Holies. The killing would take place, but then becomes, comes another important step, a sprinkling. A sprinkling must take place. The blood of the bull and the goat would be sprinkled on and in front of the mercy seat. It would be brought into the Holy of Holies and spread over that Holy of Holies. The blood was brought there, and it was this entire process that would make atonement. Not just the first part of the slain, but the offering of the blood, the presentation of the blood. There was a killing, and there was a sprinkling. In the same way, the cross is the beginning of our salvation, and the intercession, the ascension, is the completion of our salvation. Blood must be spilt, and blood must be carried. And Jesus' blood, according to Hebrews, was carried into the highest heavens. Jesus goes into heaven to present his blood in the Holy of Holies. Even the song we read didn't say something like, sprinkles now the throne of grace. His blood now sprinkles the throne of grace. What this means for you and me is that Jesus stands before the Father to pray, yes, for your protection, your preservation, but oh, for so much more, he stands there now for your pardon. He forgives you now. His blood is presented now before the Father. Now, what are some implications of this? Well, let me just talk to the kids for a moment, even though this applies to everyone. I just want to talk to the kids for a moment. Even, as you know, it's very hard to confess our sins. It's very hard to confess our sins. It's hard to admit that we're wrong. But we should all be very eager to do so because Jesus prays for our pardon. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why do we confess our sins? We confess our sins because we believe his blood still and continually covers all of our sins. Or to put it negatively, when we fail to confess our sins, we do so because we doubt that Jesus will forgive them. When we don't confess our sins, we're saying, I don't believe he's going to forgive them. But we confess our sins because we truly believe that our sins don't break the covenant relationship God has with us. It is Jesus' blood that is the glue of our relationship, not our good works. The relationship between us and God stands whole as long as Christ stands whole before the Father in heaven. Therefore, we should draw near to the throne of grace with great confidence. Because we know that his blood will cover all of our sins. So we confess our sins because we know those do not break the relationship. Because Christ's blood there stands in heaven for us. 
As C.S. Lewis said, there's a deeper magic, right? There's a deeper magic that splits the stone. So this should make you all the more eager to confess your sins because you know they will be forgiven. Jesus' blood presented before the Father in heaven is a sure and final word. Martin Luther said this. He said, we should sin boldly. But what I think he meant is he knows that our sins will be forgiven so we can confess boldly. We can confess boldly because we know they will be forgiven. That's why Charles Wesley, we sang these words this morning. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My assurance stands. Before the throne, my assurance stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. What does Jesus pray for? He prays for your pardon, for your forgiveness. Two weeks ago, I got news that a former colleague of mine, who was my age, uh, she worked with me back in Portland, Oregon. She was killed just suddenly in a car accident. I had many lunches with her, just with other faculty members. She was a young professor, again, about my age, a counselor. One day she was alive, the next day God decided to call her home. None of us knows the day that will be our last. When Ryan Stone in the movie Gravity thinks it is the end, she wonders, is anyone praying for me? Is anyone, will anyone mourn for me? She herself wants to pray, but she doesn't even know how. And this raises the important question, is anyone praying for you? Is anyone interceding for you? Well, if you are in Christ Jesus, the scriptures affirm that Christ does intercede for you. But if you are not in Christ, you don't have an intercessor. You don't have an intercessor. But why? Why don't you have an intercessor? Not because he can't. There is enough power in his blood to pardon the whole world. Not because he doesn't want to. He will willingly forgive you. His prayers don't cover you if you are not in Christ because you have rejected his intercession. You have rejected it. You have decided to look for another intercessor, another one who prays for you. And we all have the tendency to look for other mediators. Maybe your intercessor is yourself. You will advocate for yourself. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your accomplishments. Maybe it's your good works. Maybe it's what you've done. Maybe it's how hard you've tried. But I hope you see these are all empty intercessors. These are all empty intercessors. It's either your blood or Jesus' blood that comes before the Father. Your blood or Jesus' blood. And you want his blood. His blood will cover all of your sins. He will protect you to the end. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is Jesus doing now? He is interceding continually, effectually, for all those who have pledged themselves to him. And his intercession is so much better than your own. Come to him. He welcomes you. He waits for you. Let's pray. Oh God, we are thankful that you have given your son to us. That he came and lived the life that we should have lived 
died the death that we should have died, was raised to life, and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father and is praying for us continually. We ask, Father, that this would be a comfort to us. We ask for those who are suffering even now that this would be a help to them, that it would encourage them, that it would cause them to persevere in the faith. We thank you that even now as we speak these words, Christ intercedes for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now we come to a time of communion where we celebrate what Christ has done for us. And while we usually think during this time of the cross in this meal, and we should think of the cross because his blood was spilt upon the cross, we should also remember the ascension. For Jesus presents his body and blood before the Father in heaven. And when we take of this meal, we are remembering that his body and blood covers all of our sins. It covers all of our sins. So as you take this meal, in a very real sense, you're remembering this is your protection. This is your pardon. Christ is your protection. Christ is your pardon. And as we take of this meal, we're acknowledging, I don't have any other protection. I don't have any other forgiveness outside of him. So it's a time where we come together and we physically take it because we're not only hearing through our ears, but we ingest it and we say, I accept this truth. I cling to it. I hold to it. And that's why this meal is actually for Christians, for those who have had faith in Christ, repented of their sins, and been baptized. It's a family meal. And if you're not a Christian, we actually ask you to stay in your seats and to consider that Christ offers himself for you. He offers himself for you. He pleads that you would come to him. He desires to intercede for you. He welcomes all to himself, no matter what. And we'd love to talk to you about that if you have questions about that after the service. So we take this meal row by row, beginning at the front and exiting to the right here, and then you come down this aisle and go back up to the left and return to your seats. So come and eat and remember what the Lord has done for you. Let me pray again, and then we'll have everyone come, and I think the servers are coming in just a minute. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this meal that reminds us of what Christ has done for us. We pray as we take of it, that we would be encouraged, that you would help us to remember the sacrifice that Christ has endured on our behalf and that he now continues to care for us as he resides in heaven, as he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you for this grace, and we pray that you would help us by your spirit to cling to it. We pray that you would cause us to persevere to the end. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.